0: Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, outgoing Online News Association CEO, Irving Washington. As CEO of ONA, Irving Washington has led programming and fundraising initiatives for journalists, media professionals, and students worldwide. Before joining the organization in 2011, Irving worked for the National Association of Black Journalists and the Radio-Television Digital News Association. I first met Irv at Facebook's annual F8 Developers Conference in San Jose, California in 2017. Zuckerberg and company were behind the eight ball with the news industry for underdelivering on revenue and efforts to combat misinformation. I was a small cog in a large wheel endeavoring to improve that relationship. Anu Irving was a fellow fellow of the program now called the Media Transformation Challenge at the Poynter Institute for Journalism. The year-long in-person program provides a set of transformation-oriented tools, expert instruction, and coaching within a top-notch community of peers, all pointed towards a fellow's specific outcome-oriented challenge. I knew that Irving and my shared experience with the program would create a media rapport, so I sought him out like a cruise missile and was immediately at ease with his megawatt smile, charm, and wit. Not long after, and for years to come, I would lead Facebook's effort at Irving's annual conference, and in 2019, Irving and I, together with the great and mighty former Knight Foundation Journalism VP Jennifer Preston, and current CEO of the Center for Public Integrity, Paul Chung, fellow fellows all, would develop, launch, and begin to scale a series of global news summits designed to up-level executive skills, connections, and collaboration. And then COVID hit. When Irving announced in July that he would step down from his ONA position at the end of 2022, I was first in line for the exit interview. This week, in the fourth in our series of MTC sponsored episodes of Friends and Neighbors that we're calling MTC Journeys, Irving shares details of his childhood passion for recreating mainstream media like The Simpsons through the lens of representation, a through line that connects his work at RTDNA, NABJ, and ONA. We discuss how Irving pivoted his initial MTC challenge from international expansion to a broader organizational transformation as a larger leadership opportunity presented itself. And we talk about how Irving applied key MTC tools like From Two and The Balcony and coach, friend and friends and neighbors guest Karen Gordon's Four Temperaments to accelerate ONA's transformation. Irving shares the importance of developing a power opinion matrix to understanding and influencing stakeholders and the value of MTC tools, experience, and network in navigating one's career and life. And we post-mortem his 11 years at the helm of the world's largest membership organization of digital journalists, his impact, achievements, and aha moments. It's a lovely conversation with a great friend and it starts, as it so often does, at the very beginning.
1: On an actual audio cassette, I literally used to record shows totally by myself. This footage does not exist anywhere, thankfully, because it had have been very embarrassing with this high-pitched voice. Benjamin, it would be hours and hours and hours. I think I would just talk about what I would see. I would also annoy the heck out of my great-grandparents because we used to stay there for the summer. He used to hunt, so I would interview him after he uh, brought deer and rabbit home. I remember I, my great-grandmother, I would interview her when she was watching her stories, which she would get really annoyed by. The very first thing that I bought with my own money that I'd saved up $400, and I bought a video camera from the thrift store. Ooh. I think this might've been 12 I brought the one where you put on your shoulder. Like, this is the big camera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With, the, like, the VHS. And I just started recording everything in, in the house. So given what I do today, that may not be as surprising, but I do remember there was more of a media herv even when, when I was yeah. little. I just recognized that there was a lot of power in what you saw in video and heard. I wasn't as strong of a writer, although I did do writing. I don't know what you call it now where you're inspired by a show, but you write your own thing. So I wrote my own comics as well. I think I had like 60, 70 volumes. It was based off of The Simpsons, but it was a Black family. Uh And then I did one off of Tiny Toons, but I made my own cast of characters. I personally enjoyed like all forms of media, whether it was TV, radio, and so it was just fun.
0: What were you watching?
1: I loved all black content just as a kid. And also remember, we're talking about the 80s. So it was always siloed, like it was a Friday night or it was, I don't, I can't remember all the days, but it was always in a siloed frame. We're talking about like the different world era, mm-hmm. um, Urkels, you know, family matters, all of that. That was always must see what 80 kids was not a Saturday morning cartoons person.
0: You sort of answered my question, or at least you intuited part of why I was asking, which is. The degree to which you were endeavoring towards increasing representation or improving what was woeful underrepresentation, basically televised segregation.
1: I've never thought about that question until you just asked me. And I think it was a lot because everything that I would recreate on my own had a black lens to it. I very rarely had an original content idea. I was usually taking something else that I saw and then I would put a black lens to it, or characters to it, or a narrative to it. I think you're right, it was sort of this lack of what I was seeing elsewhere and and creating it for myself.
0: What's notable about that is the agency. You're like, well, I'm just gonna do it myself. And again, I get it, you're 10, you're not like, you're not thinking I'm (laughs) gonna do it for myself, you're just doing it.
1: It wasn't like I was distributing or sharing this. I used to spend every summer at my great grandparent's house. My grandmother used to watch her stories, aka soap operas. And uh, 11-, 12-year-old Irving ended up watching stories with his great-grandmother that became, like, our thing together. And even that, I would then take and recreate, like, these characters of soap opera characters in my own kind of little kid world.
0: (laughs) I'm really interested by the multi-generational aspect of your upbringing. I was
1: used to just... Having a lot of family around, and family was usually taken care of you. It wasn't sort of these access to daycares and just the way things I think operate a little bit yeah. more now. I consider it a blessing to be able to have that experience and can look back on that and and appreciate those moments
0: and I wonder how it's informed your sense of community building. I mean, it's just impossible not to see for me, not to see a straight line between how you might have experienced family and how you cultivate a sense of family. In what you do?
1: I have to give a lot of credit to my mother. My mother was very proactive in exposing us to a lot of different things with a sharp eye for our safety and making sure we were around the right people. Like one of the things that you also made me think about, and it's a part of my experience growing up, and I think it leads to a lot of the work that I've done today. I went to one of the few Black Catholic elementary schools growing up. I know many friends uh, who are Black and their experiences growing up of being the only from a very early age. I actually have the complete opposite. I was surrounded by everybody that looked like me from pre-K to third grade. That was my sort of experience of experiencing the world. Clearly, and again, as a child, I I don't remember how much I was aware of the external. I knew societal pressures and, and what that meant. But my day to day was around all people that look like me. My education was around all people that look like me. And it was a, you know, it was a Catholic school, even though we're not Catholic, that had a very strict, it was regimented. It was, you know, grades were priority. So much you got to learn. Community was the priority there, too. So I do think that has also shaped me a lot. I was always aware it was an otherness just by the fact of being black, but it was yeah. it was an otherness with an built in automatic community of knowing that it wasn't an alone otherness. Yeah. Whereas, and where other experiences, I think people both feel the societal piece, and then right. literally in the place where they're going to, they are literally the other, the only other. Yeah. And so, right. having the otherness be the societal piece that we were all processing together, I think just made such a such a big difference.
0: What kind of conversations were happening around the dinner table?
1: My partner gets on me because he says that I do too much all the time. We definitely were a do-too-much family. So I think even Uh, having dinner table conversations, we were always involved in something. My father was a pastor as well, too. uh, So there was just a lot of activity. So even thinking about dinner table moments is a little bit few and far between because I feel like we were always on the go. But mostly, I think we were kind of a laid-back family. I think we were either talking about TV or what other stuff with family. I don't think I was sharing my stories. I was forcing people to listen to the tapes. Maybe not at the dinner table. But I do remember forcing people to listen to the audio tapes.
0: (laughs) You went to a performing arts school.
1: Both middle school and high school. And uh, what was really interesting about the middle school, there was no grades. You were judged on these, like, seven spatial intelligences, there was literally no concept of any kind of grade. There was just this is what you're learning and how you're developing in sort of these yeah, seven great. spatial areas. And uh, you had to do music. So that's how that started my middle high school trumpet career. I don't remember saying, like, oh, I'm overjoyed. I can't wait to do it. Benjamin, what it actually became, it became access. Um, and One of the things of access, my mother wanted me in other sort of educational opportunities and it gave me access to other opportunities. And I did end up going to public school, but it allowed me to choose where I wanted to go because music Mm. was a pathway. And I think you've heard this with different things, whether it's sports or academics. For me, music kind of did that. So I think part of it was it was I did not enjoy it. The best part about it was the people, the community of the band, like hearing us all play together in concert or or how are we doing That I love that all the time. Um, I think, you know, some of the pressures of either being first chair or or making sure, you know, all the things that get in your head of trying to be perfect. I don't necessarily enjoyed those, but it started at that middle school.
0: So as you were heading out of high school and starting to think about college, did you have a sense of what it is you thought you were gonna do?
1: when i started to look at all of those career options of what that could look like, Benjamin, i just didn't want any of them. It was, you know, start in a small place, work hard, work your way up and, you know, do all these things and i and i always would just say this feels so limiting. It feels like i want to do more and yeah. this pathway that everyone is telling me i need to do I wasn't necessarily continually producing a lot of stuff. It was more so being drawn to the collection of what the media industry could do as opposed uh-huh. to like writing, producing. So right. I always felt like I was forcing myself to fit like a path. By the time I got to college, I found the best major that I could. Boston University had a strong broadcast bent and I did the program that I could do. And You had to do journalism, PR, bad sales. I mean, it was yeah. so binary what you, yeah, so I forced narrow, myself yeah. into a structure and did all the things. And after graduation applied everywhere, nothing was landing. Time was running out. I needed to do something toward graduation. So I actually ended up staying an extra year in college, believe it or not. Cause I was like, wait, I'm not ready for the real world yet
0: for what it's worth, I loved academia, which is partly explains why I went to MTC, formerly known as Sillsbury. Same thing with what attracts me to go into workshops at ONA, right? That ongoing education, that sense of continuing edification and growing and deepening. It also is a referendum honor, speaks to your interest in continuing to learn and grow and be in the world and not just be like a fixed, finished thing.
1: I was involved in everything. Student government, Surprise. I was in RA, I was in a fraternity. I enjoy communities of communities because what is really even more fascinating is when you are in this community, but you span across multiple ones and then you start connecting the dots of different things and different people and you're learning things, you're adding insight to different things. And then you start to see we're all kind of dealing with the same things in different ways. And we're, but we're looking at it sort of in our bubble of community.
0: Which in essence was my experience and what every time I talk to a fellow fellow is what you hear from them. Like, oh, suddenly I realized that we were all kind of wrestling with the same thing. Even if we were competitors, like, wait a second, this is a similar thing. You know, I'm not alone, which is one of my favorite epiphanies in my own life, but also just in others. When you get that moment of like, oh, I'm not alone, which is at the heart of community, right?
1: Hands down. That's like the number one. I mean, even in the the work that I do today with O&A, I've always said the thing that connected sort of the past and present and O&A and just in general was not feeling alone. Like there's people yeah. who think like, just having people who are similar to you, think like you, and even if they don't think like you, just being a part of some of the same mission or, yeah. or cause together or just way of thinking together. It, there's very little that can match that. And in a lot of ways, it is really around, I think, why we're here, you know, like yeah. the purpose of why we're here is to be in a community with each other.
0: So take me on that trip to DC, man. What was the catalyst and how did you find the courage to do that?
1: I always end up reaching this point and this is a blessing and a curse. I've always been gifted to know what's not the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Figuring out what is though has always been the struggle. That has always been the struggle. And every fiber being of me knew that Indianapolis was is not the right thing for me in adulthood. I had a friend that was in DC and I couldn't just totally do this like risky thing and say, I'm just going to randomly move to this city and we're going to see how it works. So I came up with a guys that looked real and, also, and it was real. I actually did it. I said, I'm going to grad school. The reality was I had saved enough money to afford one class <laughs> <laughs> in one semester but to everybody else i'm going to grad school so yeah. i did i did sign up because i needed the purpose right i couldn't just totally sure. just go yeah. on with my personality i was so adamant to get out of Indianapolis. i remember it was a snowstorm the day before <laughs> and i was like nope even the weather's not going to stop me i made it about an hour and a half out and literally the rolls were closed
0: yeah and I said,
1: lord you are not going to get me away from my <laughs> that was martin Luther king day and uh, moved to my place. And I found a job uh, within a month later mm. and I started on Valentine's Day. That job was found through the Washington Post job ad section. No connections, knew no one there. Barely even knew what RTD name was because it was just the acronym. It wasn't the full spelled out name. And oh, then I love it. first day of the interview, find out more about the org and what it is. And I'm like, this is it. And I tell people... Like, our job is just to kind of figure out and read the paths of life. Like, some people are just very gifted and they say, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm here. I'm pushing toward it. For other people, it's like, no, our job is just to to keep discovering. Like, it's a story that's unfolding Mm -hmm. and our Mm -hmm. job is to pay attention. That was a moment definitely where I said, oh, this is what all those chapters were for, right? Like, this is why you weren't necessarily drawn or attracted to this single path. This is why you were so community-driven in nature. This is why you did all these activities and projects and events because it was coming to this at that time. And clearly, as is shown later, it was coming to this moment.
0: Well, I would add just as a person who's known you for a hot minute that it's also because your path didn't exist yet. Who you are in the world, it wasn't a copy editor or a managing editor or a producer what the world needed from you was not an existing slot, I don't think. What was that early gig?
1: It was formerly the Radio Television News Directors Association and Foundation, now the Radio Television Digital News Association and Foundation. It was for a project director. They had just uh, received, uh, maybe a year or two prior, a large grant from the Knight Foundation, and it was to launch a high school broadcast, journal, nationwide high school broadcast journalism program big scale country wide around how do you advance high school broadcast journalists in order to kind of pipeline the field.
0: Oh man, that is like uh...
1: spot on. <laughs> I always remember my first month because again, I'm a Midwest boy. I haven't really been exposed a lot. I didn't travel. I think I maybe had flown once prior to that. And so I remember and thank God I work with like just nice people at the time within the first couple of weeks they we had an event in South Carolina and they go book your flight. I'm like, wait, I, 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 yeah,
0: how do you do
1: this? Like, I don't know how this works. Immediately that job was travel, training, meeting all types of journalists from across the world. Like immediately, like within that first month, like all of it just started and that just exposed like a whole new world and path for me.
0: And did that lead logically and rapidly to NAPJ or did that take a second?
1: When you tell these stories after the fact, you see the thread. At the time, you don't. But there are moments where I do get some directional next steps. I never get the big picture or I get the end in. I just don't get the middle. But sometimes next steps immediately come clear. So Mm -hmm. as a part of work with RTDNA, we work with different organizations. And actually, my job at the time, I traveled to all the journals of color conferences so I was literally on the road, quote unquote, circuit, as they called it. And yeah. one day, the heads of NABJ and the newly hired director came into the RTDNA office for a meeting. My boss invited me in. We had a conversation with them. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to work there. I didn't know the two of them at the time at all. And then a year later, I did get to know Ryan a little bit. But it wasn't, um, we got to know each other because we were on the circuits. I wasn't, this is like 25 year old me. So this is not, yeah. I'm not processing like networking and connections and this is how you kind of do this, this stuff. But the end of, I think 2007, he reached out to me cause they were doing some, they just had some layoffs and they were about to hire some more people. And he reached out to me about a job. And so that sort of just naturally led there next.
0: What was the condition of the organization when you arrived and what role did you play while you were there?
1: The organization had went through some layoffs. They had downsized to four people and a new executive had just came on board. So they had stabilized enough to be able to start doing some hiring. I was the first hire after that sort of restabilization, And that was project coordinator. I was managing all of their student programs. So their student projects, the internships, all of those programs. That's where I started at, at least. I was also 20-ish around that time. So I was not too far off from some of the people yeah. who were coming through the program. Still, there's some distance there. I was in student project with people like Wesley Lowry when they were, wow. or Yami yeah. Gamador. Now it's like when I travel and I'll turn on the local news, some of those students, are anchors and and reporters, it's been it's been great to see them.
0: Your boss at ONA, as you were making a transition from NABJ to ONA, suggested what was then Salisbury, what is now MTC.
1: So think about now, at this point, I've worked for Radio, Television, News Director Association. i work for NABJ. I'm at the Online News Association. If you look at that sort of career arc and you think about the position I'm in now, what's missing? I've never worked in a newsroom. <laughs> literally mm-hmm. never worked in a newsroom. Right. I used to be inferior about that because you literally can see sort of the connection that people make. You could have worked one week at the New York Times or any place and people are like, oh, He's a journalist. But if you don't have any of that time at all, then it's like uh it, it's like you have to prove more. So I think by by sheer will, I've just stuck around enough where people I've earned respect and, and admiration now. But I didn't know this at the time. My predecessor, she was thinking about her departure, and I could be someone who could fulfill her role. The board has to pick it, she has no say in that. And so her thinking was. This could be while it's clearly not working in a newsroom, you know, this is working with high level news execs. So this could give Irving a little notch of credit to just, you know, Mm -hmm. say that there's nothing to worry about by the fact that he has not worked in a newsroom. That does not make him any less qualified to lead this organization. She and Jennifer Preston, I believe at the time, they had a little side sidebar chat that I didn't know about. Again, I didn't know any of this information about, great. you know, Jane potentially leaving or anything like that. Uh, but she presented the program at the time to me.
0: Talk to me about your experience in those first days, that fire hose experience and the experience of facing the class before you.
1: I was walking in with this slight inferior complex, again, of never working in a mm-hmm. newsroom because it has been with me consistently to that point and wondering, am I, am I going to fit in here? Because looking at the list before you, you're looking at all these big names mm-hmm. from these large mm-hmm. organizations. There was a little bit of intimidation there of just like, okay, am I going to be able to really connect with the folks here in this program? And then that was also mixed with excitement because at that point I had done uh, a couple of other fellowship type things and I knew if you maximize that opportunity of doing something like that, then yeah. it's like the sky's the limit of yeah, yeah, what yeah. can happen both professionally, personally at your job with you. So I did come in there knowing I wanted to maximize sort of that, that opportunity, but that was sort of the first, those two things are the first thing that I remember just kind of walking into the room.
0: What are some of the early experiences that stuck with you?
1: I've always been reading leadership stuff. I've been reading temperament things. I came in with just a lot of knowledge. Just per- I enjoy this this stuff. So not that I didn't think that there was anything new to learn, but you know, I didn't expect to be sort of as taken back as I was by the activity. And I always remember and and just for context, there's temperaments that they put us into four based off the Myers-Briggs. They kind of narrow it down to four ways. I was a catalyst, which is the much more collaborative group and one of the activities is we have to work on some type of, I believe it was an ad or a project. Yeah, it was or a poster,
0: right? poster
1: that we yeah. have to work on together. And so... I remember the Catalyst group. Uh, it was super collaborative. I thought this was like the best thing ever. Like, who wouldn't want this utopia of a world? You have an idea. I build off of your idea. You build off of my idea. This is how it works. Kumbaya, yeah. hold hands. Yeah. Like, this is how the world is supposed to be. And then we end in this final document that's a representation of like everyone in the group. And it was just a great like feeling. So yeah. we end. And then one of the things that they have you do is that everyone has to present what their process was, not so much the poster itself, And so we do our thing. And of course, I think ours is the best and (laughs) the most amazing poster you've ever seen. And I remember we went to the other groups and the group that stuck out the most and forgive me, I believe it was the Stabilizers. But I was just so speechless by it because they said, oh, yeah, here's our poster. What we did was we talked about the different ideas and then we voted. Uh, And then the person who had the best idea, they did the poster. uh, And my mind is blown because I'm thinking, (laughs) why? So as much as I knew the way that we did it was right, and as uh, as excited as I was about it, they had I saw they had the same energy yeah. that we had. And so, of course, when we got a chance to ask questions, I, I was curious as to why. And I remember they, he's, uh, whoever was said, well, it didn't make sense for all of us to waste our time if so-and-so had the best idea. And it was so matter-of-fact, and I was like, well, I actually understand that. Yeah. But it was it's very rare that I'm taking it back where I don't because I pride myself on like being able to kind of read a room, sense people and, you know, different ideas. And that just never occurred to me as any type of way to do this yeah. project.
0: And to them, it was as equally valid a truth as the truth that inclusion and collaboration is the, way, is the way to go. Correct. Correct. Yeah.
1: Obviously, it's not right or wrong. I'm grateful for the experience because I didn't look at that and say, oh, that was the wrong way to do it. I was just more struck by... Not only did this not occur to you, this was not even in the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of options that yeah. you would have ever thought about.
0: Yeah, I, I remember that super duper well. It will surprise you 0% that I too am a catalyst.
1: <laughs> of course you are. Of you know, you are.
0: Right. Uh, and I can remember Karen pointing out specific language by group, by temperament. And she would point out how like, Now look at Benjamin, how he would, throughout the presentation, (laughs) validate everyone around him, their perspective and their contribution, bringing everybody into the presentation, this thing. And it really was, uh, for me, maybe, maybe, other than from to, which is a really clear way to think about how to create transformation, right? I think temperament is the stickiest thing I picked up.
1: For me, the biggest takeaway, and even to this day, it's one of the strongest things that I take away. There is something that I have that is such a strong belief that I have a blinder to something else that's not even on the list. There's something that I don't see because of my beliefs, my background, who I am,
0: mm-hmm.
1: what am I missing Yeah, and who can help me see it.
0: That's great. What an insight, right? That's like worth the price of admission right there. Yes.
1: And I think it's harder maybe for catalysts because we do feel so in tune with people and we do feel so connected to just everything. The world, spiritually, it just all of this. So, you know, not to brag on us, but I feel like we don't get caught off guard too often. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. one of those moments where I was just caught off guard. I was like, oh, this was not even, you know, again, it was not even something that was even on your radar. And yeah. I think as a leader, you know, our job is to see as many things on the radar as possible, just so that we're, cause we're representing so many things and people yeah. and so many people are depending on us to see a, a wide variety of things that that was such a strong thing that left me.
0: Do you remember your challenge?
1: My challenge at the time was around how do we grow our international Mm -hmm. audiences. Now, keep in mind what I told you before, that Jane, my predecessor, was part of me looking into the program and, and getting into the program. I didn't know she was leaving at the start of this. Like, it was not fully known. During the course of my while I was in the program, then her leave, meaning she's leaving her executive director job of the organization I was at, was known then, and I remember going into the program because it was always about like the challenge, the challenge, the challenge. Yeah, I never changed my challenge until one day I was talking to my coach. You know, we just catch up, we tell everything what's going on and I'm describing what's going on. Quentin was like, wait, what? I said, yeah, my predecessor's leaving. I'm gonna go up for her job. He's like, Irving, that's a big deal. And I said, can we talk about this? He said, yes, we can talk. Not only can we talk about this, we should talk about this. Yeah. So needless to say, my challenge over the course of the year changed from how to grow international an international strategy to literally what is my vision for this organization that I am aspiring to lead.
0: How did that inform what became your transition into a leadership position at ONA?
1: Again, this is one of those situations, divine intervention. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I cannot imagine a better time to do this program than when you're applying for an executive director, CEO position, because everything that we're talking about is how to lead. The program yeah. is purely, is solely designed on really how do you lead? How do you transform uh, organization, people from all aspects of it, which which is what I loved. It touched on so many different things. It's not just strategy, it was people, it's the tools you're learning and so essentially the program became my interview. I yeah. mean, that's how I developed the vision, the from yeah. of where ONA was at to where I wanted to see it, the matrix of the, uh, the people, because yep. obviously, you know, there's a committee, the, there was a, the board and the selection committee had to pick me. It wasn't guaranteed, just because I was an internal candidate, yeah. it wasn't guaranteed. Like I had to earn that just like anybody else would. So thinking about all the dynamics on the board and the team, how I saw the staff, I think almost everything that we talked about Apply to vision setting, right, of what you want to see. And then additionally, probably one of the more important things is listening to everybody else's challenges. Yeah. Right. Because those are challenges that even though we didn't have, and I, I told this before, which has been, you know, fast forward now six years, you know, five, six years later. I think the other thing that has been an insight is just because that's not your challenge today. You don't know that's your, that's your challenge three years from now, right? Like yeah. this presentation you listening to literally, that's going to be you in 2018. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So taking all of those stories with me of other people's challenges, even though it had no applicable need for it at the time ended up being so valuable later.
0: So you formed a vision. What was the vision and how did you apply it? I got to imagine it connects to the overall work that you've done in your span of time there, 11 years ish as you exit.
1: The from to, at the time, and even today, it has it has remained the same. I was always about expanding who was represented by ONA. Mm-hmm. That was included international, included people of color, included mediums and professions. We were already in a good trajectory of that, but it really was thinking through kind of the from to of what that ONA member looked like and kind of laying the vision out there. And one of the great things I think about being able to be at this point Because we produce an annual conference and we were able to have an in-person event this year, I can literally see that from too. Like I can see the from of when I started ONA in 2011, what that looked like, amazing people doing incredible things, but also room for improvement, right? Of who's actually there, who feels heard, who feels seen. And then to look at it now, like it's a living embodiment of a from, too, by, by person yeah. and people. Here's a great example. I th- this was either 2012, 2013. There used to be a text and we would say, hey, all the black people, we're going to take a picture at three o'clock on the elevators. That's how many black people were at the ONA conference at that one yeah. point. Time. We could yeah. fit in one picture on the top of the elevator and we all knew each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At the time, the focus really was on... Technology, which again, think about 2011, there was just a yeah. lot happening in technology. How that were you were in it, right? Like how it was changing and the diversity aspect. I don't want to say it was an afterthought, but it was in the priority level, it felt like there was a lot to advocate for on just the technology digital journalist side. I always remind people. ONA was founded because somebody couldn't join another association because they worked for MSNBC.com. Ah, okay. That's ONA's founding story. Like MSNBC.com was not considered journalism. So if you kind of take that arc, there was so much to, you know, be advocated for that various folks at the time, again, that just was not a priority. And part of my from to was that we can do both. We can do a variety of different things. Whether that's, you know, expanding sort of the international reach, whether that's spanning people of color, whether that's expanding the type of career level folks that are sort of in the room and what the yeah. makeup of that was. And that's what we've done over the course of the time. And some of that also predates me as well to my predecessor started that as well. But that is literally what the From To was and is right now.
0: Can you think about an example of how you either leveraged your community or one of the tools or concepts or the coaches to help catalyze that transformation?
1: One of the tools that I use all the time. So I'm in an association. And for those that aren't familiar, like associations are membership groups. So at any point in time, memberships vote for people on the board. We have various committees. So the funny thing about working associations, you're spending a lot of time with people who actually don't work in the same place that you work Mm -hmm. and they have other full-time jobs. So that power of opinion matrix is literally 24-7 my job because I'm always leading through influence all the time, up, down, left, right, sideways. Yep. So uh, you really have to be in tune with where everybody is at any given point in time. And we all have to do it. I think everyone who works has to do it, but it's something different versus the people who you work with day in, day out. You're all basically getting you know, the same paycheck from the same person versus yeah. someone that also has the same intense job that you may have, and they're doing this on the side. Yep. Like, how do you get this person to say, hey, this extra time before work, during work, after work, to work with me in a way? And it's mostly volunteers. So yeah. not only how to do that, but they're also working for, you know, there's not, there's There's typically not compensation sort of in the volunteer structure of that. So that power of opinion matrix, even today, to not like today, metaphorically, today,
0: <laughs>
1: as we record this, it's a, one of the top tools that I use.
0: To me, there's such a through line from you, seeing the segregated world of must-see TV just for Black kids and making your own media. Because in essence, you were having an existential experience of underrepresentation that is a straight through line to the work I have witnessed you doing and that I can see in my first ONA to my last ONA, you know? Um, so it's really neat to have these conversations as a fan, as a friend, and just just a curious, interested person, you know? And that's why I love to start at the start because you can learn... You just see an arc that's much more interesting than a career because our careers are who we are in a way, right? They're not all of who we are, but they're <laughs> part of it. So ONA, proudest achievement.
1: Not to be redundant, uh, that from too, from where when I look at what we look like today back then, the conference is a great example. That is what I'm most proud about. Even, and again, just top down for the staff, the board, our board is majority women and people of color. Mm-hmm. I'm also always careful because when you do this work, you're never at this point of like, it's done or you're of a sort of model- yep that you've done it all, we were prepared for the 2020 when when mm-hmm. what organizations were going through with racial reckoning. People may or may not agree with this. We didn't do a Black Lives Matter statement in 2020. Yeah. I said, let's get to work. We were We were already doing the work, right? Yeah. We were doing the work. And it was, for us, again, at the time, that just felt like this is what people are doing because they felt like they have to do it. And it feels like PC to do it right now. But the receipts of the work are mm. lacking. And mm-hmm. I was saying, we already have demonstrable receipts. Again, we don't need to brag about it. We need to talk about it. We're doing it because we want to do it. For us, that was something that I felt like we just didn't need to do. And which, when you think about us, it, it's ironic. This is an organization with a Black CEO. And <laughs> yeah. saying... No, we're not going to do a Black Lives Matter yeah, statement, right? Yeah, like, yeah, But yeah, here's yeah. what we are going to do. Some of it will be seen, some of it's not seen, but here's all the work. So that, to me, is like one of our, one of my, I feel like, you know, and for the organization, right? Like, I feel like that's a problem.
0: What was the moment when the chips were really down and you were, you know, stymied? Like, ah, what are we going to do here?
1: For folks that don't know, we, part of our community building is our in-person conference. It's had 3,000 people, pandemic you know, starts in the U.S. with the shutdowns in 2020. However, and this seems like such an obvious thing, but when you when you talk about the chips were down and you don't really know how things are going to go, but you're really yeah. guided by a sense of purpose, mission, we announced that we were going fully virtual for an October conference yep. in April. And in order for that announcement to come out, we made those decisions weeks before, and I give credit to the staff and the board When we presented all this and when we came up with this, we didn't waver on it. And for context, when you do these large events, you can face like a million dollars or more in penalty fees for not canceling. And remember in April 2020, we didn't know if this was a fluke or not. Like this could be who knows? This could be go away in one month, two months. And so we decided to go virtual before we had even canceled with the hotel before we had figured out like we you know we obviously ran numbers and did our due diligence but we said this is the right thing to do I have no idea how this is going to turn out And even if it doesn't turn out well like we feel confident in the decision but that was definitely one of the times where you know you make a call and you go with sort of what you know and you believe in the team that you have and now we know clearly that was the the right thing to make but we were one of the first groups to just say no this for safety reasons we're not doing in person.
0: What's a wow or like a pinch me moment? like a moment where you're like, I can't believe this is my life. Like, wow, this is great.
1: (laughs) My wow moment, and this was actually not when I was ED and I've shared this story before, was when I got promoted to deputy director at ONA. Mm. There was someone who had reached out to me, it was a woman in the newsroom and I haven't shared with her, I haven't got permission to share with her name publicly at this point, so I won't say it at the time. But there was a woman in... Uh, a newsroom who I did not know. It was a Black woman. And she sent me a note. It said, and I saved it because it literally has been one of the most memorable, wow, mm. things to me, even to this day. She saved it and just said, I wanted to congratulate you on your promotion. You don't know me, but I'm so-and-so. I was having a really rough, and I'm paraphrasing, I was having a really rough day in the newsroom, almost thinking about getting out of journalism, and I saw your face uh-huh. as someone in leadership another black person and it yeah. just gave me a little bit it gave me a little bit more to keep going mm-hmm. again i didn't know who this person was i don't even know if she was like an ona i don't even think she was like an ona member i think she just saw it um and she was in a newspaper in in the south and i tell this to people often where i think some people feel like sharing sort of your successes or things you're proud about is braggy or showy and i tell people no you don't know who you're reaching yeah, are touching. And particularly if you're an underrepresented group, you need to be seen, yeah. right? You need to be seen. And so that was a uh, wow, wow. And then today, this person is like a founder of like a nonprofit. It's just, it's just insane to mm. me that that one picture in a newsletter, even if that was like one tenth of this person's story to all the incredible things she went on to do, that was just a wow moment to me of just recognizing, you know, when things are just bigger than you, right? And sort right. of just taking that in and appreciating
0: that. How have those relationships grown with you in the last eleven or so years?
1: The relationships are still present today. i I have a trip to New York next week. I'm doing meetups with multiple people that are that are in my class. And what I think is most valuable, and i and I've shared this with people who consider doing the program. The tools are great, you know, when you're actually in sort of that year of the program, it's really great. But what's invaluable, you and I doing this podcast together, there are so many things that you don't know that are going to come your way Mm -hmm. next, both opportunities and challenges that a book has not prepared you for, your previous experiences have not prepared you for, but somebody in this program could Right. Just from through these connections or just be the sounding board, somebody to talk things out. I think the thing that is so interesting to me, too, when you sort of develop these relationships, particularly professional ones that are more closely connected, where they kind of understand where you're you're coming from. Yeah. A lot of the time you actually have the answer. You just need to kind of talk it out in a trusted and safe space Yeah, yeah. that somebody who's really smart, asks you good questions, can challenge you, can build you up, can have that rapport that's what has really lasted me the most. So the relation, I've really appreciated those relationships that have done that. And then just on the personal side, you, you know, I think we don't put priority on friendships. Like a, a, one of the concepts was a, friendships are the one relationship that does not have sort of this kind of contract to it. Like family, mm-hmm. there's like this blood contract marriage, there's literally sort of this legal contract. Friendships are the ones that are like kind of loosey goosey, right? Mm-hmm. You can kind of take, but they're, proven to be one of the most strongest in terms of like happiness overall. So as an adult, you know, you spend a lot of your professional time here. And I think the program does allow you to develop friendships. So where there is both a professional component, but a personal component as well.
0: You're spending a lot of time engaging people, standing on stages, go, 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 do, 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 very visible I think I would be speaking for many to say that you're upbeat, you're energetic, but there's a set of expectations that that carries with it. And I'm interested in the degree to which you experience like some kind of external imperative to show up high energy herb. And how do you restore and rejuvenate and re-energize and refuel yourself? And how do you keep yourself in check so that you stay well?
1: Maybe part of my uh, rejuvenation is actually publicly talking about these things because my first year as a CEO executive director was extremely mm. challenging. Mm. Even, and this is Paul Salzberger, this is having networks and resources. And it came from a place of perfectionism, what I felt like I expected of myself. Also based upon everything just I said, knowing because of who I am, being like the first Black person to be in this role, there's yeah. an expectation there. Are all those expectations right? And not feeling like you're living up to them, even though by every external... One of the things that cued me in to something was off every external measure after my first year, whether it was financials, membership numbers, all of that were high. Yeah, Like they all were high. I didn't feel high. Like yeah. I felt very, very low. I felt inadequate. I felt like an imposter. I was able to kind of take a step back. And so that's when I really had to stop and say, this is not sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. Like what? what are you... What are you doing? What do you want your life to look like? This is not how you sort of envision, you know, you did all the work to get to this role. And if you burn yourself out, you know, this is just not. So for me, it really was, and to this day, I still have to say I'm still say i not perfect, but I, I, I definitely am much more further along than what I was. You do have to do a lot of boundary setting. The boundary setting starts with you. It's like, what do I want my life to look like? Not defined by a title or a career or people, Just what does Irving want his life to look like? Like just kind of sketching out a little bit. Okay, am I making time for what I just said on this list? And you literally have to invert it to say, okay, these things are the rocks. These are the bigger things. They have to find a place. Other things have to fit around it, making time for the things that I'm saying priorities.
0: Tell me about how you're thinking about this new role and how are you thinking about the timing of this exit and what made you choose the moment?
1: I decided to leave ONA in this role before I had something next. Mm-hmm. So my current role which will be at KFF as a senior fellow, that did not exist when I decided to leave ONA. I will say part of one of the tool, you know, what you have to use constantly but particularly in the decision to leave, which is called getting on the balcony, which is basically making sure you're taking a high view of things. And for me has that related to leaving, It really was getting on the balcony and recognizing I have done what I needed to do in this role and it's time to move on, even though I don't know what's next. And clearly Mm -hmm. it comes with a lot of privilege to be able to make a decision like that and a lot of blessings to be able to do that. But it really was looking at what's ahead for ONA, what's ahead for me and what's the best decision for all things. And again, this is keeping in mind. Have an amazing relationship with the board. The staff is doing incredible things. Ona is on a wonderful kind of growth trajectory, despite all of the, the the challenges. But when you sort of take that very very high balcony view of not just your organization but your life and how all of it fits together, this became clear to me. And this was supposed to end. And I looked when I looked out at the the board that we have, our staff. This also just felt like a great transitional position for the organization. And I wrote a blog post, said lovely things about ONA again. And it wasn't like running from something. It was just knowing mm. that this chapter needed to end. So many people reached out to me after that post. And it was a mix of thank you for modeling what time to move on looks like. Yeah. And also what was more surprising. And also not everyone that I knew was regret. People saying, I should have done that 10 years ago. Yeah, I should have done that 20 years ago but I just kind of stayed, I didn't listen to sort of the thing that was telling me it was, it was time to end. So that was also very fascinating to me as well too, just the range of how that prompted people to think about their own chapters and when do you take ownership of, of what that looks like.
0: What would you tell that 10 year old at grandma's with the cassette player recording a show? Like, what would you tell him if you could give him a tip or some guidance or just share something with him now
1: so you'll love this. People will not be able to see this, but I am holding up a picture of probably a 10 or 11 year old. Um, uh, handsome girl. And I've literally, you don't, you didn't know this prior to, I've actually kept this nearby because mm. as a reminder to kind of think of that question often of what would you sort of tell this person? and And just in general, I firmly believe there are purpose-driven things that we are each here to do and this is what I would tell Little Irving, you're not going to be gifted with knowing where directionally that goes, but you will be gifted of knowing what's not for you. You'll have this sort of innate push-pull for something that's not for you um, that will typically be clear, and you ju- you have to use that to really guide you and sort of trust that. The thing that I also would tell Little Irving, and I, thankfully Big Irv is has done this, is Not to make decisions out of fear Mm -hmm. because the regret of not doing something will eat you more than any sort of mistake will ever do to you.
0: Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And for more on MTC, please go to the Media Transformation Challenge program at pointer.org. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.